Welcome to another edition of Unplugged. Great to have you with us again. It was a win last week that effectively ticked a box. It didn't necessarily do a lot more than that, but it was certainly required on the back of the shocker. I mean, I think any time you win a week after you get beaten by 111 points, you've probably got to take it. It's unlikely to be, you know, irresistible champagne footy, but... In saying that, it was probably a margin that was a touch underwhelming based on the level of domination that the side had for, for large parts of the game, and particularly in the third quarter when they opened up a lead of about 45 points that it looked like it could have blown right out at that stage against a team that will either finish last or second last, you would think, on the season. It would either be them or Hawthorne. So um, a, a pleasing result, but obviously some improvement that needs to happen. Uh, still a few injury concerns. Hunter Clark to return this week, which is certainly handy. Um, but a couple that we're still waiting on in the likes of Marshall and, and Jones and, and co. Uh, confirmation that Jake Carlisle's done for the year. And I guess that's a conversation for another day as to whether it's for more than the year or um, or whether he will perhaps represent the club again somewhere down the track. But 12-16-88-10-8-68, North kicked the last four goals of that particular contest. Um, again, conversion in front of goal was a, a fairly significant problem, particularly early in the game um, when that first quarter, when I think it was three goals, six to a goal, and it should have been 40, 40 points of difference a quarter time. But I guess we'll take it, H, um, your summation of that. I mean, it was... You get the win, you tick the box, you're reasonably satisfied. But, um, yeah, it, it probably wasn't much more than that. It's, I mean, half a tick. I mean, it, it wasn't a convincing performance, that's for sure. Um, a team like that, if we think that we're going to be competitive at any point this season, you go in, what was it, 30... 30 odd 43 points, points up three quarters four, time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 43. Mm. Um, the th- I think it was 31 and a half time or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you expect to finish that off. Mm. You want to make it, but you want to make the win convincing. You want to go, we're not just going to roll over and play three quarters of football. We, we're going to put in a four quarter effort. That That was probably the first tick that we had to actually have ahead of a win, a four quarter game of football. The win comes as a bonus if you play four quarters of football. Um, so that's where it only sort of becomes half a tick in that point. So it, it's really got to be a case of now we okay, we turn, turned up, we got the four points. It wasn't great watching, but we got to come out this week and play four quarters. So better, better opposition this week. It, it's got to be yeah much better than what we saw last week. Yeah, look, I agree with you, H, on, on a lot of that, except the order, I guess. I think, that, you know, for us in, in that perspective, from my opinion anyway, I think that the win was the absolute bare minimum and we did the bare minimum we could to, to get that result. Um, anything more than that is, you know, kind of extra targets, you know, stretch stretch goals. And, and um, to play four quarters is something that we haven't really done all year, except for maybe Hawthorne. Um, maybe GWS in, in the first round, but that was that's a tough one to, to really identify. But maybe Hawthorne, but we know you know where they're at at the moment. But um, yeah, there there are a couple of things that that I identified, and and one is that we're not very good. We're not a very good team, and that that's point A. Point B is the fact that we're not a very good team is entirely mental. I think we can be a very good team. I think. On paper, we're a very good team. I think at 
even even at skill level, and and I think you look at at the way that we've played last year compared to this year, the skill level is entirely different. Last year we played bold attacking football. We were hitting targets from 50, 60 meters at times. And you know, we moved the ball really quickly. This year we we're stagnant and and we're not hitting targets from 20 meters away. Uh, and, and you don't lose that. That doesn't just disappear overnight. You don't lose skill like that in one year or six months. It it just doesn't that's not how football works. It's not how skill and talent works. So where we're at at the moment is is entirely mental and emotional for us as a group. But I think ultimately there are other factors. There are external factors um, in terms of the way that we've performed. And, and we know injuries, we know personnel issues, we, we know all that. And, and I think we can stop using that as, you know, as an excuse. It's, it's not an, ex- an excuse, but it is a reason. Um, but at the same time, emotionally and mentally, the difference between the effort and intensity, that's where it's at between 2020 and, and 2021 is entirely mental. I think we have the ability to be a very good team in this league. I think we have the ability and the skill and the talent to take it up to the very best teams in this competition. And we're just not doing it. And and we don't do it because something's, something's changed mentally within the group that they're not able to, to put that effort in or, or not willing to, or they're not fit enough four quarters to put that effort in and intensity in. And that's something that I've been, I've been thinking about um, a fair bit for the last, the last few weeks is, is what happened in the off season. Maybe that, that shorter preseason that we had because we played two weeks of finals and we are, aside from a few very old guys, we are a pretty young group, but maybe that the lack of that extra few weeks in in the preseason and whatever, and some injuries during that, that period as well. Maybe that impacted our fitness and our conditioning to the point where now, even 12 weeks into the year, that our conditioning and our overall fitness level as a group just isn't there. Yeah, it's, it's a, I, I agree that it's, you know, in terms of we're, we're not clearly not playing particularly well and, and it doesn't have to stay that way. I think, you know, in sport, in, in media and amongst fans and social media, we can we can always have extreme and knee-jerk reactions. A side will, will lose a game and they're the worst team ever. They'll win a game. They're the best thing we've ever seen. And those those opinions can fluctuate dramatically from, from week to week. But in this instance, um, I think, you know, the, the confidence aspect is particularly telling. I mean, if you look at our year, there was a... You know, a brave win against the Giants with 10 or 11 of our best players out in the wet. We dominated half a game against the West Coast Eagles. Absolutely dominated. We were all over Geelong on a Friday night. We didn't kick straight, but we've had some absolute shockers as well against Essendon and Port Adelaide and Richmond and the Bulldogs. Uh, we've had scratchy performances. We've really had everything this year, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between. So, um a lot of it is to do with confidence and certainly kicking for goal is a classic example. You look at Max King, you look at Tim Membry, you look at Dan Butler, you look at those sorts of players that are the missing opportunities that they wouldn't normally miss. So um, it's been a year where there's been challenges, but a lot of clubs have faced challenges. There's been wasted opportunities. And I think all of that has worked to damage the overall confidence of the group and look at five and six um they were supposed to play sydney at marvel this week the fact that it's away obviously um creates a, another challenge but they've got adelaide the week after if they could eke their way ahead of the ledger somehow win a couple in a row get to seven and six 
then you never know. Obviously, you're in a position where you you can still control your own destiny, even if your percentage is, is pretty ordinary. So we, we've hung in there. That's really all we're doing. It's been clearly an underwhelming year, but I don't think all of a sudden that everything we've done has been a complete failure. It's just for whatever reason, there's a disconnect, there's a minor breakdown in the system. Uh, and there's a few things that need to be fixed. I mean, I would argue, I mean, if you look at injuries across the competition, I would argue there are three best players, uh, Jack Steele, Rowan Marshall and Jade Gresham, and two of them aren't there. And I'd say that Zach Jones is in our top seven or eight, and he's not there either. And I'd say that Hunter Clark is in our top 10, and he wasn't there last week either. So um, there aren't too many clubs that you would say, if you were to pinpoint these are our best six players and four of them aren't playing. There, there aren't many of those. But that doesn't explain everything, as we said. It doesn't explain a lack of resistance. It doesn't explain missing shots at goal. It doesn't explain dropping away for 20 minutes in matches. But all of those things can be fixed. It's not a case of, geez, the whole strategy is wrong. They're hopeless. It's just um, trying to put all those pieces together. And, you know, there are sneaky chance against Sydney, which we'll touch on later. I mean, the Swans record... It's funny, they haven't lost a game at the SCG this year, but I'm not convinced they play the ground superbly well by comparison to others. I think they enjoy bigger grounds. I mean, they, they beat Essendon by a point or something. They beat Collingwood in an ugly game. They were behind most of the day against Carlton. They beat Adelaide. Um, so their performances at home have been solid enough and, and certainly we're underdogs and it's a tough game to win. But I would argue they're a team that plays the MCG and the Gabba and... Um, Optus Stadium perhaps better than they play their own ground but um, we'll find you, out they might smack us so. you, you're streaking ahead on the run sheet mate we're, we're not up to that yet <laughs> got on a roll <laughs> I, I, I've got I've got a question I've got and, and I want to put this to both of you but is there is there much outside of four points is there much that we can gain from last week's North game um, probably not a lot I mean obviously you blooded another youngish player in, in Claverino, but um, not really. It's, it's probably more, I wouldn't say it's you can gain a lot. It's just you avoided losing a lot. I mean, a game like that writes your season off if you get beaten in it. So what you've gained out of it is that you're still alive, I guess. Mm. Yeah, probably, the, probably the look at the inclusions that we brought in last week, most of them were probably in our best top half dozen mm-hmm. in the game. So they're the players that are going to put pressure on the players who are getting games week in, week out. If those players can keep coming through, that's when the top liners that we do have need to improve to get their spot. So the pressure coming from outside and players looking going, hey, if these players keep playing well, I'm going to lose my spot, hopefully gives them a bit of a kick along and, yeah, they start, start improving and gelling a bit better and... Um, that that's hopefully what can bring a lot of the improvement. So, yeah, just those inclusions that actually made the team look better than what it was the week before is is probably the biggest positive out of the whole thing. So, what do you what do you you mentioned those, those um, inclusions and Parker? You mentioned Claverino and, and his debut. So, what did, what did you make of of that first game? And and how do you rate him against some of the other guys on the list? Obviously, we we know you know Frawley and Carlisle are known. You know, we know what they're going to give us each week if if they're there, if they're around and, and fit. But you know what we saw from Dara Joyce for a couple of weeks when he when he was in the team. What did you make of of Claverino's debut? He was solid. Um, he didn't get a lot of the ball, but his pressure was pretty good. He only made one or two mistakes where he got caught with the footy, but I think he he was solid enough. Uh, he's obviously earned himself another game. But um, yeah, look, it wasn't a, a stunning 
debut. It wasn't Alan Murray when he kicked four against Hawthorne at the MCG that time. You're but not, um, not going to get that out of a fullback, though, are you? Really? No, that's right. But he was. I thought he was. He was okay. Yeah, he. Um, I thought he did his job. He he didn't get beaten in many contests. He didn't get caught too many times of the ball. Um, kept his head. So yeah, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was handy enough debut. Yeah, I was a little bit of concern when I saw him was playing after a, a few weeks. I mean, we saw Sandringham lose a couple of games where they had big, big leads. And a couple of the times they, they were actually on the TV in those games and he made some horrible mistakes. I was, I was watching one day and he's get the, got the ball facing our way about 30 metres out from the opposition goal caught the ball, turned around and faced the opposition goal, handballed it, a medicine ball to a player and who got absolutely smashed and they kicked the goal from it. And I'm thinking, oh, you can't bring that in, if, into the AFL if you're going to be playing. He looked a lot more confident than what he did that day. So uh, as I said, I was a little bit jittery with him thinking and seeing what I'd seen in the AFL, but he looked a lot, there's a lot more confidence there than what I'd seen there previously. Yeah, it really surprised me, actually. It's, it's a good point because it seems like we're, we're so used to seeing guys who come in from the lower leagues, whether it's you know a state league in Stanford or the VFL or whatever, and dominate in those leagues, then come in and just can't make that step up to the, to the elite league in, at the AFL level. And I was, like you, H, really concerned. I'd, I'd seen him at training a few weeks earlier, and he just looked looked off the pace compared to some of the other guys. I'd seen him on TV in the, in a few of the Sandy games and, and looked small compared to some of the VFL forwards. And I was, I was quite concerned, even, even knowing that you know, North don't have an especially big or strong forward line, but I was, I was concerned for him and, and for us, but I was quite impressed at, at his athleticism, his attack on the ball and the man and the way that he, he, uh, he tackled and competed was really impressive. And it almost seemed like that step up to the elite level gave him an extra boost and he played better at that level than he did at the lower level. And and maybe that's just because he'd been there for, you know, three or four years already at, at that state level um, and underage level before that. But um, I reckon, and I've seen a little bit of, it. I'm not going to say that I've seen a lot of his games at, at Sandy or, or, or VFL level, but I've seen a few, but out of the ones that I've seen, that was his best game of football full stop at any level of football. So I was quite impressed by him, and and you know hopefully at this point that he he keeps his spot for the you know for the foreseeable future. Now, um, before we get into the votes, obviously it made a bit of news during the week, rightly or wrongly, that um, and Max King had another tough day at the office, and clearly he looks a player a bit down on confidence. Um, he kicked that one five or one six or whatever it was against Geelong, couldn't couldn't get a kick against the Bulldogs, but no one could, particularly if you're playing forward, and then obviously. Um, just struggled to make contests, kicked two behinds, didn't look like kicking either of those goals against um, North on the weekend. The news that um, he'd reached out to a former coach of his and mentor in Matthew Lloyd, who, despite being a left footer, obviously, was a, a beautiful kick for goal. Uh, over the course of his uh, career, kicked 926 AFL goals, and Max reached out and, and, and Lloyd effectively accepted, but said he'd have to tick it off with the club, and the club has decided they wanted to handle it in-house. How do we feel about that? I know there's issues around sports science and extra work and that sort of thing, but I don't think it was necessarily that. I think it was more um, 
having different voices and different messaging and mm. confusing players with too much information. But to me, I don't think things like that can necessarily hurt. I understand perhaps where they were coming from, but to me, I think any chance you can to, to get advice off somebody that is one of the best in that particular craft, then I think you should be entitled to, to listen to that. So I personally would have allowed it. Yeah, yeah, it was I, only a couple I of weeks agree. ago we were asking Jason Heatley what he was up to. Mm. So <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah. No, I, I I agree with you, Parker. I I see both sides, and I can certainly understand where the club is coming from. I mean, obviously, if if guys you know, like Rats and and Ruffy, and I, I'm sure Aaron Hamill, despite being the the defensive coach this season, I'm sure they would have have conversations and discussions around part of this process, but. Yeah, I'm, the club the club wants to have one single simple message that goes through to Max to make it really easy for him to process and understand and, and move through this this period of, of the yips or whatever you want to call it. And so I kind of you know I understand where they're coming from that that they want to keep this message really simple and and easy for Max to to work through. And the message is is singular. It's coming from the club, whether it's Rats, whether it's Ruffy, whether it's Hamill, whoever it is. The message is from the club. And this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to handle it. And you have our support and then going external to get messaging from someone else, regardless of who that is, regardless of the the caliber of that person. And, and there's no, you know, there's no implication from the club that, you know, Matty Lloyd isn't good enough for, for this discussion or, or, or this process. Um, but that we want to keep this really simple. We don't want to, send mixed messages. If, if Lloyd is going to give you different advice to what we're giving you internally, then that's potentially an issue. Not, not definitely an issue, but maybe, and we don't know because we're not there yet. And, and but the, the point is we don't want that to happen. Right. So I, I see that perspective and, and I get that from a theoretical conceptual point of view, but like you, Parco, I mean, you get a guy like, like Matthew Lloyd, 900 plus goals at AFL level is, you know, distinguished at that particular skill set that that we're lacking, that Max is struggling with at the moment. You take you take the advice, and whether they you know whether they send Ruffy down to that skill session, whether they send someone from the club with him, and, and they do it together. You know, I don't know what that what that looks like, but I mean, surely when that that advice and and the caliber of that type of person is willing to help out, and you know, you've got a guy like Max King that's that's crying out for assistance, that wants help, that wants to get better, that knows he's struggling and, and wants to get better, that, you know, you give him that assistance. Yeah, I think it's um, hard to argue with with any of that, but um, we'll wait and see what happens. Hopefully he obviously finds his radar this week and beyond. Votes 3, 2 and 1H. Do you want to kick us off first? As I mentioned, uh, I felt... The best player, some of the best players we had on the weekend were some of the inclusions into the team, and of yeah, given five of the six votes out of uh, players that were brought in. So, um, one Jack Steele. I'll move on to the two. Um, I said I basically give him one unless he does has a really shocking day. So he, he takes that one because I mean, they did what he does every week. Um, two Mason Wood. I mean. 80 disposals, eight marks, three goals, 80% game time. You, you'd give at least two votes to anyone who does that. Yeah. That's 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 a great game. I mean, I don't know whether it's 
the North Melbourne factor that he likes and he decides I'm going to turn up on these days because I think the only time he ever played a good game was against us. So it seems to be the game that he likes. Um, and go to three to Luke Dunstan. That was a great inclusion on the weekend. Um, he, he's been ripping it up in the VFL and he, he just, it was a ball in on the weekend. He got in there, got the ball, it got it out for us, extracted it as much as he could. He gave a running option in positions, made space you can see that he's found uh, that confidence in the VFL of saying, I want the ball and I'm going to make play, to make the play with it. Um, so just that bit of confidence in the midfield that we'd been lacking for a few weeks now, it, he just shone above the rest of them. Yeah, I've got the I've got the same three. I wanted to give honourable mentions to Tim Membry, Paddy Ryder and Jack Billings, who I thought worked hard all day. Um, you, you mentioned not giving two to, to Mason Wood. I'm giving Mason Wood one. Uh, I thought he was very good. I thought his work up the ground was average at best. I thought his, his work inside 50 was very good. And I thought that's, uh, this is more, I guess, a, a, a comment on the coaching and the strategy is that I, I never understood why when, Mason Wood's been in the team, but he's been playing up the ground on the wing, you know, high half forward, leading up. The he can get the ball. He has no issues getting the ball, but he's, he absolutely butchered it when he had the ball, you know, up at center wing um, and was essentially liability is too strong a word. He wasn't a liability because he was still putting in the, the effort. But, you know, when you, you do all that hard work to get the ball and to, to make those leads and get up to center wing and, and win the hard ball and win the contest, and then you give the ball away. It's almost pointless. And and I, I thought he was very good in most elements of the game. But that that section of the ground when he was between kind of the forward 50 arc and center wing, I thought he was pretty average in, in his in the play. Once he had the ball, he was good getting it. He was good leading it and presenting and contesting. But once he had it, I thought he was average. And, and I, I, I docked points for that. I gave two to Luke Dunstan. He was very close to best on ground in my eyes. Very, very close. Um, did nothing wrong, but again, the skill level by foot lets him down. And he had 26 touches and 22 of those were kicks and it's not his strong suit. It's never been his strong suit. Um, and, and I think, you know, as, as fans, as supporters, when you see a guy making that effort in the middle of the ground and winning the hard ball and then only, only get handballs and, and, you know, churning out little, little handballs and little clearances out to other guys, you kind of go, well, anyone can do that. Anyone can do it, but not anyone can do that. And and for him to win that type of ball and to, you know, he had seven clearances, 13 tackles, it was a really good game. Um, but to spend so much of his hard work on then misdelivery by foot, let him down. And um, like you said, H, I, I gave three to Jack Steele just because he just doesn't, he just doesn't do anything wrong. He does everything right. And he very rarely plays a bad game. This this wasn't his best game by any stretch, but it was a very good game. 24 touches, 11 kicks, 30 handballs, um, 12 tackles, another seven clearances, 400 metres gained. For someone, you, you look at his rise through the ranks at this footy club over the last three or four years, it's it's almost incredible. Um, and you know, I, don't, I, I couldn't see anyone who deserved the three votes more than him. I gave uh, honourable mentions to Membry, Billings, 
Steel actually didn't quite squeeze him in, uh, and Dougal Howard I thought was solid enough in the uh, in the back half. I gave one vote to Mason Wood for the reason stated. I think uh, broke the game open in the third quarter with a couple of goals, uh, took some marks, sort of patrolling around the fifty and set up a couple of others. Popped up at crucial stages. I gave two votes to Brad Crouch. I thought. Um, 25 possessions, had a stack of tackles and a stack of clearances, kicked an important goal early in the third quarter and three votes to, to Luke Dunstan. What, what got him over the line was also the job on Cunnington, um, just being able to limit the, the impact of the opposition's best player and be our leading possession getter. I think if you get the double act of leading your opposition's work, leading your team's work in the middle and nullifying the opposition's best player, I, I agree. I mean, his ball use is clearly not a strength, but I mean, Cunnington has killed us a couple of times in the past. So uh, it may be a chance for Luke Dunstan in terms of those types of roles, whether he could, you know, find a lockdown. And we know that if he's around the contest with those best players, he's, he's a natural ball winner. He'll get the footy. Um, and it's just sort of how he distributes that. He can play. I mean, Seb Ross is probably similar in, in a way, um, probably a slightly better player. But um, but but in terms of those options, um, it, it does give you a little bit more strength around the contest. So, I think we've always accepted that Luke Dunstan can play. He's got some limitations, but he, he can play AFL. Hmm. Um, and that was the type of role that I think certainly suits him. Uh, he, he's around the coal face of the ball because he's got the opposition's best player uh, around him and he'll win enough of it himself in those circumstances. So that, that was pretty pleasing from from my point of view. Our, our next guest won a fair bit of footy as well. He was an electric player, particularly in 1997, Played 108 games for the club up until the age of 23. It's a very young age for an AFL career to end, but he did plenty, and he's continuing to do plenty in the AFL system with our club. That is Tony Brown. For the Saints, kicking inside 50, Pete and Turner, one-on-one. Good punch from Turner. Win made, a lot of the ball. Now it'll happen. Kicked a couple last week. Thompson is caught. Callaway, the tough tiger. Interception from Brown is a chance now for Tony Brown. That's pretty good. The Saints won the play again. Pretty fair assessment. Saints again. Tony Brown, who's been very elusive so far. He kicks, and he kicks his second as well. Well, Tony Brown was a fine player for the Saints, played 108 games for the club, including a magical 1997 run as St Kilda progressed through to the grand final. He works now as a player development and welfare manager at the club, and it's fair to say the last sort of 12 to 15 months in Australian sport and the AFL has just thrown some challenges up in that regard. But, Tony, nice to have you with us. Thanks, Darren. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Nick. I guess just starting off, we'll touch on your career shortly, but I imagine when you sign on for a role like that, it probably isn't in the fine print that we're going to go into a global pandemic and spend months living away from home and, and all of those sorts of things. Can you sort of take us through the adjustments within your role dealing with, uh, I guess, the ever-changing COVID landscape? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, certainly in my role, there's never a dull moment. Um, and 2020 was no exception. We were told we're going into state for... 30 days and we'd be home to our families and 103 days later we, we returned. So it was, uh, yeah, it was quite bizarre for everyone in the industry, but we're all very grateful. We were still employed and, uh, yeah, the AFL did an amazing job to get the season done. So, but, yeah, there was certain, certainly plenty of support that the players required, um, the staff, and then also all the families that joined us up in Noosa at the RACB Resort. 
Um, yeah, they looked after us up there and it was terrific to get most of the families up at some point and it was terrific to win our first final in nine years, which um, yeah, made it all worth it. Now, go back to the your, start of your career. Uh, so drafted in 94, started in 95. Um, did you get spoken to by the club beforehand? Did they give you much indication you were going to get drafted? And, uh, I mean, we had a fair draft class with yourself, with Ozzy Jones, Joel Smith, Stephen Zilla. Uh, how, did, how did that group come through the ranks? Yeah, we. I still remember had a, had a few clubs come into our lounge room down at Leopold and meet mum and dad and myself and, yeah, the Saints were one, of course, and John Beveridge and Gary Colling, they sit in, sat in our lounge room and um, said if I was still around at pick seven, they would consider taking me and, yeah, very uh, very lucky that they read my name out. Um, yeah, pick seven. So I think Joel Smith was pick four and then I was seven and, uh, yeah, Aussie was in the early 40s and, yeah, we obviously formed a pretty good friendship and played some reasonable footy together over our career at the Saints. Now, the word is, Brownie, and, and for everyone who's listening, you've literally stepped up to the plate this afternoon at about 5.30. We're recording at 8.30, and uh, and you've jumped on the call for us at short notice. So we really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us tonight, mate. But um, word is that you were a pretty handy cricketer back in the day. Was it was it a hard choice to go with footy over cricket, or how did that work? Uh, yeah, it's a good question, Nick. I, I always grew up thinking I was going to play cricket for Australia, I was fortunate enough to, to play in a lot of rep sides growing up. I was vice-captain of the Victorian under-17 side. Uh, we got beaten by New South Wales in the in the National Carnival um, at the Adelaide Oval in the final um, that year. And then I, then I made the under-19 side as a bottom age uh, and then then got drafted. So I, uh, <clears throat> I love my, my, my cricket and, and my footy and... Yeah, I, I still remember making the under-19 Victorian side. Um, Stan Ells was our coach uh, at the end of 94 and 95, of course, and he said I was welcome to go to Sydney and tour with the, the big under-19s, but I probably wouldn't play in uh, in that in my first season in 95. So I decided not to tour with the team and and get stuck into the pre-season, and I think I debuted round five that year. So... I have no regrets, um, but yeah, I, I did love my cricket and um, enjoy having a hit now and again with a few mates when I can. Yeah, so you did debut pretty early that year. You you actually had an eight and nine record that year. We went eight and fourteen, so we lost our first four or five. You came in, and then um, it's actually not a bad omen for us. The record was pretty good from from that point on. But played seventeen games in your first season. Now we've spoken. I think. We worked it out that five players have worn Danny Frawley's number two since he retired. You're now the third of those that we've spoken to, along with Aaron Hamill and, and Aaron Sipos. Um, can you take us through, obviously, he retires at the end of 95. You go from the number 26 to the number two. How did that come about? And, and I guess how special was it firstly and, and how special has it now become, obviously, in light of the, the recent tragedies? Well, I was obviously very honoured to, to be asked if I was interested in wearing the number two Guernsey. I wore number 26, as you said, in my first year, Darren, and um, Kane Taylor, he wore that, and I'd met Kane a couple of times through that. And then, are you guys with me? Got you back, yeah. Got me back, yeah. And met Kane Taylor a couple of times through Stewie Lowe, who's, who's best mates with Stu, and, um, yeah, I was, I was pretty happy with the number 26, and then 
when Spud retired, I was lucky to play in, in his last game at, at the Witten Oval and it was over that, that summer that um, I was asked that, uh, yeah, Danny had mentioned that he'd like to hand the, the jumper to me and I, I was, yeah, I was quite surprised and, and, and uh, but yeah, obviously accepted that with open arms and was very grateful that I was able to wear, wear the number two jumper and um, in my office at Moorabbin now I've actually got, the photo of Spud presenting that to me at the MCG, I think it was in the, the Herald Sun in, in 96. He was the development coach at Collingwood and he, he presented that to me in, uh, in 96. So, yeah, I, I've got that on the wall very proudly. Yeah, I'm sure he gave you some advice that that we know the sort of character he was. Is, is there anything you sort of stuck in your mind when he's handed jump over? Did he whisper something? Did he... Tell you, yep. This this is this is what you got to do now. You're wearing this number. Yeah, it's it's funny you ask that. I mean, he gave me lots of advice on and off the field, and yeah, I still hold that to to this day. But um, I was about five minutes late to that meeting at the MCG, and I, I actually went to Moorabbin, and, and Cliffy Pryor was our property steward, and I said I need the number two jumper. I'm going to meet Spud at the MCG for a photo shoot. He's going to present it to me, and he. He didn't believe me. Um, so I had to convince the property steward that I was telling the truth and um, I went in there and when I arrived, Spud looked at his watch and said, Brownie, the number two is never late. Um, I said, no, fair enough. And um, so from that day on, I was always on time. <laughs> um, mate, for, for some of our younger listeners, they probably never saw you play and, and probably only know you as the development welfare manager at the footy club. But maybe for, for their sake, what, what type of player for you? Because I was going through some of your numbers and, and I was saying to, to Aaron earlier that for me, you know, by the time you retired in 2000, I was 15. And so your six years at the club sent, seemed like a lifetime. It, it seemed like you were there forever. But in reality, it was it was six seasons. And um, 1997, I'm sure we'll get to at a point, but... In 97, you know, you averaged uh, two kicks to every handball. For the rest of your career, it was, it was pretty much one-to-one, and that was our best year. It was probably your best year as well. What type of player were you, and, and why was that, that 97 season so different for you personally? Uh, I, I still remember I, I played the first game of 97 in, in, the, in the reserves, and uh, Ricky Nixon was my manager. And, and Ricky, he uh, he's had an interesting life, as we all know. But he he, he another character, his... another character. Yes, yeah, yeah, character. And uh, he, he was very good to me during my playing days. And he he challenged me to go and have a chat to Stan Elves, our coach, and and say that pick out a player that uh, was in the opposition team that we were coming up to play. And I I said to Stan, I'd like to play on Darren Creswell against Sydney. I think we had them in round maybe three or four. Oh, and yeah. um, he said, oh, okay, all right, leave it with me. And I, I came in round two and played okay. And then he read the team out on the Thursday night and I was named in the centre on Creswell. And I actually played played okay. I think I kicked a couple of goals and, and had um, about 20 touches and, and um, yeah, probably had the better of Creswell that day. And that kind of gave me the confidence to... To, to match it with the best in, in the midfield. And, um, yeah, and then from there, I think, obviously, we had a, a pretty good season and playing alongside Burke and Harvey and Everett in the centre, I was uh, 
I was in there with those guys. I, I learned a lot and, uh, yeah, playing with three champions of the game, um, I, was, I was very lucky to, to learn the craft at a young age. To, uh, I guess, paint the picture for some of those youngsters out there, a very tidy left footer. He used to kick a lot of goals coming through the middle of the ground as well. That 96-97 period. So 96 kind of teased a little bit as to what 97 would do. We won the Anzac Cup in 96. We won four in a row at one point. Went on a bit of a run late in the year and just missed out on playing finals. But over that 96-97 period, how was the confidence levels within the group? And, and were you were you confident that what was going to happen in 97 did ultimately happen or would ultimately happen? Yeah, well, Ray McQueen, who, who set up and, and run leading teams for many years, he joined us at the same time that Aussie Jones and Joel Smith and, and myself joined the club in 95. And and leading teams, as it is now, um, but, yeah, Ray, he, he was one piece of the puzzle. And it was all around having high standards um, and agreed behaviours throughout the playing group. And, and I, I firmly believe that that played a big part of, of us. I think winning the Wooden Smoon in 95 and the first year to playing in, in the grand final in 97. So we we all drove uh, each other pretty hard. We, we had a pretty good balance. We enjoyed each other's company off the field, but also worked really hard uh, on the field and, and the training as well. But So, yeah, certainly Ray McLean, we've got to um, give him a bit of credit for, but, but also the connection. We, yeah, Stewie Lowe, Robert, um, Robert Harvey, Nathan Burke, um, Nicky Winmar, um, the, all of those guys, they, they, they really took us younger guys under, under their wings and yeah, we had a really good bond and, and connection, yeah, for, for those two or three years in 97. Well, 96 was the start of it and yeah, it showed with our finals in 97 and 98. As Darren mentioned, the 96 pre-season grand final. Um, we were quite a young team. We came up against the reigning day premiers in the grand final and they gave them a bit of a lesson that night. But how did the team sort of follow on after that? There's a lot of people think that oh, they may have parted a little bit too hard from it. They might have gone a bit, yeah, oh, we can, we're going in a bit better than what we expect into the season, that sort of thing. But how, how did the team react to that win internally? Well, I think it was the first silverware the club had won since '66. So, we, by memory, I think the the winning side of the Ansett Cup was given thirty or forty thousand um, dollars, thirty or forty thousand dollars from the AFL. So there was a significant prize money to it, and and clubs did take it pretty seriously. So I think, as a young group, running in out in front of Sixty-five thousand at Waverley, and and beating Carlton, who, yeah, as you said, with the reigning premiers, it was a, it was a real buzz. So I think that gave us a bit of confidence that we were heading in the right direction. And yeah, Maxie Hudson and Maddie Lappin and and Aussie Joel and myself, I think we we all become really close. Um, and then with the the older brigade, um, yeah, we we just clicked. Now. In 97, when Saints fans talk about 97, we always talk about what if Spider Everett hadn't done his shoulder? What if Laser wasn't suspended or, or injured and through different parts of that season? But one that we don't really talk about is, is Joel Smith's knee injury. And obviously you were, you were really close with, with Smithy. Can you tell us about the impact that that injury had on, on the club and, and you as a young group at, at the time? 
Yeah, spot on, Nick. I, I think, obviously, I, I firmly believe if we had Everett and or Laser, we would have won. But I think if we had Joel, we would have won also. Um, yeah, still remember vividly the, the incident. Uh, Osborne coming across Joel's knee at the MCG it was, it was actually my 50th game. Um, so running through the banner at the start of the game was a buzz. Um, kicking the first goal at the G that day was a buzz. And then then Joel going down, it was just a sickening feeling. They kept replaying it on the big screen. And, yeah, when one of your best mates um, is, is hurt, it's, um, yeah, it just said uh, a real silence around the ground. And, and I've, I've still got a photo at home of me patting Joel on the head in the, in the change rooms at the G after the game and, He's got tears coming down his eyes and um, we, yeah, we just knew that it was pretty bad. And then the, the days following, we, we would visit him in hospital regularly and then we he moved back in with his mum and dad and, um, yeah, we spent a heck of a lot of time with him um, that next six months. Um, so, yeah, and then unfortunately he, he left, but um, maybe fortunately for him, he, he had a great career then at, then at the Hawks. But, yeah, we, we were shattered that he... He was no longer with us and he, he was a massive loss because if we had Smith, Everett and Vitavig, I've got no doubt we would have won that day in, in September. Obviously, we lost um, Matty Young, I think, in the prelim as well with a, a hammy and obviously we know the challenges that Winmar and Lowe faced uh, that week leading yeah. up to the game too. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a perfect storm. But, I mean, I remember the, it was probably 12 when Joel Smith did that, that knee. I think it was nearly 70,000 at the MCG, a big game against Collingwood, which we ended up winning. Um I don't think I've seen the footage since, but if my memory serves me correct, it's one of the more sickening-looking knee injuries in terms of just the bend and, and how Osborne came across the knee. But um, we've spoken 30, a lot in about... 30 years, in 30 years of watching footy, I reckon it's one, still one of the most yeah. gruesome injuries I've seen on a footy field, which is wasn't, amazing. It wasn't. Well, I remember the surgeon coming out at, at the hospital and telling us it was like a car injury. Yeah, yeah. It does um, put that in, in perspective. But we've spoken a lot about the 97 grand final and a lot of those what-ifs. But you as young guys, so that, that, that close-knit group that you have, so Matty Lappin and Ozzy Jones, who also in the game with you, can you sort of take us through how you all dealt with that? Was it a case of we're young, we're a good side, that hurt, but we'll be back again? Did you sort of take that attitude? Or, or did, it, did it really take quite a while to get over the loss? Or was that something that maybe impacted more later in the career when you realised how fleeting those chances can be? Yeah, another good question. We, we were obviously, yeah, I think 20 years of age or 21 years of age, and we, we just thought it was going to happen again. And we, we, I think, took it for granted a little bit that we, we were playing in a grand final and, um, yeah, we, maybe we should have won, but we uh, were beaten by the better side in the end. But I, I think we, we just... We knew that we had the talent. We knew that there was some really um, experienced guys and then some of us young guys had just re-signed, I think, for another two or three years. So we, we, we firmly believed it was just going to happen again. And I don't know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But, yeah, maybe we took the foot off the pedal a little bit. Maybe we, we didn't um, have as big a pre-seasons as we should have. And and at the elite level, as, as you guys know, if, if you, you don't uh, – improve each year you just get left behind so yeah we it was obviously one that got away but yeah probably uh took things for granted a bit more than we should have 98 was actually reasonably good we sat on top of the ladder at 
done points during the season and then come finals time we're knocked out in straight sets. Was there a feeling there that things were about to change and as we know things did change? Did you have the feeling that something was going to be happening? Well, certainly, I think us younger guys, we, we, we weren't uh, across everything happening with, with Stan particularly, but we, we didn't realise how good a coach Stan was until he, he left. Um, but it, it was a really interesting period. We, we got beaten. I think Greg Stafford kicked a goal on the siren at the SCG to, to beat us in that first final. And Stan made us sing the song in the change rooms after the game. And that, that was bizarre. Um, we came out and played Melbourne at the G in the second final and we, I think we were about 10 points down at half time and yeah, Stan gave us a, a fair bake and, um, and that was the last time Stan ever coached us. We, yeah, we got beaten, obviously, and then yeah, during that summer, the, the board made a decision to move Stan on and bring Tim Watson in. So, yeah, again, we, we, we were all pretty young and we... we uh, we weren't really sure what was happening and there was all sorts of talk about, you know, the players have, you know, made a pact to get rid of the coach and all of that, but certainly that wasn't the case and well, certainly wasn't something we were aware of. Um, but, yeah, the, looking back on it, the, the 97, well, the Nantec Cup Premiership 96 and 97, 98 season, they were, they were amazing years and yeah, a couple that just, yeah, we uh, let slip. By by the time '99 started, I mean you'd been around in, in the team for four or five years already, and in footy terms, that that's a fairly senior type of player. Um, what was it like having spent your entire career under Stan Alves, then moving into the the Tim Watson era? Yeah, well, we, we all knew that Tim was a champion player, and uh, and he read the the news on Channel Seven, um, <laughs> so we we. We knew that he was a legend of the game, so we, oh, getting a high-profile person in like Tim was, I think, quite exciting at the start. Um, and absolutely no disrespect to Tim, but we, as I said before, we, we didn't realise how good Stan was until he was gone. Uh, Alistair Clarkson, he he came in under Tim, I think, in his in his first year, and and then um, yeah, Clarko, we. We recognised pretty early that he was going to be a pretty good coach, probably not as good as he's turned out to be. But, um, yeah, certainly, uh, and Tim would acknowledge it now, that it probably wasn't – he wasn't cut out for it. So, well, I think there was, there was excitement initially. I think we were on top after about round seven or eight in – or certainly up towards the pointy end after around seven, eight and 99 season. And then we, we hardly won a game after that. So – yeah, and, and I don't know whether Tim didn't have the right assistance around him either, but, yeah, we, we certainly fell off a cliff pretty quick, unfortunately. So, yeah, we were seven and three after round 10 and, and third on the ladder in that 99 season. Mm. And uh, obviously people pinpoint that Hawthorne game where we were 1,000 points up at Waverley and, and obviously how the, uh, right. the wheel turned from, from that sort of day onwards. Is that – and, I mean, I've – We've all, you know, obviously treading reasonably carefully and respectfully. Was it more, do you feel, just that sort of tactical component when games were changing, that maybe somebody that hadn't done an apprenticeship, that hadn't been somewhere else, found it really difficult to, to maybe judge the, the, the changing trends of a game and, and be able to read what was happening in the way that perhaps Stan could? 
Um, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure Tim would acknowledge that now. But certainly, um, yeah, I, I, I just see today with the amount of support that the senior coach gets, I'm not sure whether that was there for, for a young, inexperienced coach like Tim coming in, um, whether when, whether he had that or not. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately it didn't, didn't work out the way he liked it and, and the way we would have liked it. And, and then, yeah, significant can change uh, was made post-2000. And, um, unfortunately, I was one of those people who got squeezed out when Blighty came in. Brownie, I want to ask you something. I guess you might have different perspectives on it from a playing perspective and, and now you're being part of a footy department. But there's a lot of talk you know, around footy fans and, and football data, I guess, as to what momentum means. And, and Parker touched on that game against Hawthorne. But when you're out there as a player and momentum swings out on the field, is it something that you can feel as a player? And and when you're you're there either you've been on the boundary line as a runner, you've been involved in footy departments for, for a number of years now. Is that something that you can feel that you can define? It certainly is, Nick. Yeah, you, you actually, you, you know it's happening. You can see it happening and sometimes it's really hard to, to stop. And, and that's where you need experienced heads out on the ground, not in the coach's box, but out on the ground to actually take control and, um, well, one, recognise it, but then take control and do something about it. And, yeah, that, that's why Jaron Geary, he's, he's been missed a, a bit this year. Um, it's great to have him back now. He's brilliant at it. Rewalt and Montagna and Hayes obviously were brilliant at it. Um, they've been involved with being back as a, as a runner and, and a development and welfare manager. Um, so, yeah, you, you need key figures out on the ground to, to, to make a change. Obviously, I get instructions from rats and the coaches to to make some change from uh, from the sideline but ultimately it's up to them to to stop that momentum at, at key points you said you could yeah pushed out at the end of the 2000 season when blighty was coming in and brought in a dozen players from other teams and did you obviously you probably looked a bit from the outside i assume at the club just to see how they're going that sort of thing do you think they made the right decision at the point of round 15, pushing him out the door as well? Or do you think they should have probably stayed with with him as coach and just tried to see it out a little bit? Or it just wasn't working properly? Uh, yeah, it, it's something I probably can't comment on, Aaron, because I wasn't in the inner sanctum anymore. Um, yeah, so, certainly he had his very strong beliefs and had been very successful and... Um, I'm not 100% sure that he actually wanted to coach again. Um, it was well documented that the club paid him a lot of money to, to come out of retirement and coach again. And when things weren't maybe going to plan, they, they had a change of heart. But, yeah, certainly he he was a different operator by all reports. But, yeah, I wasn't in the inner sanctum, so I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I was, I was asking the question because you probably knew most of the group. So it was whether they would react better to... Um, having that longer term sort of thing, or yeah, that's whether it was a changeover that was probably going to like sort of lose momentum again, I guess. Yeah, the, well, certainly, I think there was 15 new players come in, so I I did know a lot of the guys still, but there was a huge chunk of the boys I didn't know. Um, and and yeah, I think by memory, Blighty was 
trying to wrap up a couple of our senior boys. Um, and I don't know if that's up well with the, the playing group and the powers to be either. So, yeah, there's probably a, a range of reasons. But, yeah, I'd, I'd never met the man and I'm not never sat in a team meeting with him. Um, but, yeah, he's he's got an amazing record. It's the unfortunate part when we look at 97, obviously the fallout from that. So Jamie Shanahan didn't play for the club again. Joel Smith didn't play for the club again after that year. Matty Lappin had one more year in, in 98. Nicky Winmar had one more year in 98. Uh, obviously yourself and Jason Heatley and guys like that got through to about 2000. The Wakelands till about that same stage um, as well. So that the changes would come reasonably quickly, unfortunately, for the group. But, I mean, you were 23 years of age and had played 108 AFL games, which is uh, quite remarkable by modern to, to have an AFL career end at 23 when you played over 100 games. Um, in terms of that, you obviously went back to South Australia. Did you Were you able to go on and, and just obviously enjoy the rest of your tenure or was there ever a feeling that, you know, just based on pure timing more than anything, you, you might have left a few AFL games on the table? Well, certainly, I I remember getting told on the Thursday. I think there was thirteen or fourteen delisted on the Tuesday, and I was called in on the Thursday and and given the news. So when you're told you're not required anymore in any organisation, it's a, it's a kick in the guts and um, yeah, something I was shattered with. But um, wasn't sure then what to do, and and I was I was very lucky to to go and have. Uh, We'll sign with the Port Adelaide Magpies in the SNFL and, and lucky we, we had a, a reasonable year. We played in a preliminary final over there and I was lucky to, to win the McGarry medal and uh, had a number of clubs talk to me about giving me a, a second opportunity um, back in the AFL and unfortunately that didn't happen. But um, certainly no regrets. I didn't nominate again for the draft after that. I, I went back to uni and... and did a Bachelor of Education at, at UniSA and um, yeah, was studying full-time whilst playing SNFL footy with the Port Adelaide Magpies. I went over there for one year and stayed for five and, yeah, had five of the best years of my life there. Um, an unbelievable football club and five years I'll never forget. You, you mentioned that feeling of, of sitting in the room being told that you know, you're not going to be re-signed or that your services are no longer required from a playing perspective. How much has that experience, um, I guess, impacted on your, your later life and the, the second part of your football career, you know, as a, as a welfare officer or welfare manager and, and development manager? Yeah, I tell a lot of people, Nick, that I think having sat in the player's uh, shoes um for six years as an elite athlete, having been dropped, having been injured, having to work through those challenges, having been delisted at a young age and then having to get a real job, I suppose, has has really helped me in my current role. I think my teaching, I I taught for seven or eight years as well, um, five, six uh, homeroom teachers um, at three different schools, Sandringham East Primary School, Haleybury College and Christian College down in Geelong. So I think having played the game and having an education background has given me some really good skills to assist me in in the current role as the development and welfare manager. And I don't talk about my career very often to the boys, but um can certainly talk about some of my experiences and some tools and strategies that I used. And, um, yeah, certainly I'm, I'm helping them on their journeys and 
And if I don't have the expertise in a certain field, I need to point them in the right direction to um, provide further support. Two quick questions. So having captained Port Adelaide, where you stand on the bars and stripes debate at the moment, that just seems to really be <laughs> all the time. And um, and how did you get back into the AFL system, Back, um, funnily enough, at Collingwood? Yeah, I, I certainly, I signed a petition a couple of years ago as one of the, the living past Port Adelaide captains um, to, to get that through, but I'm not sure how they're going to go with that. And... How I got back involved in the AFL, well, Matty Lappin, who we mentioned before, who was a teammate in the mid-90s, he, he was an assistant coach uh, with Malthouse at Collingwood, and he rang me up one January and said, Brownie, would you like to come and do the running at Collingwood? And I said, oh, I'm not sure if I want to be the runner. And anyway, long story short, I went and met Malthouse, Jeff Walsh and Paul Lecuria at in the, the boardroom at, at Collingwood, and they said, Brownie, you obviously played the game. You, you're a teacher, so you must be a good communicator. We'd like you to come and do the, the running match day. Um, <clears throat> so in 2011, they'd just beaten the Saints in, in 2010. 2011, I was the, the runner. I think Collingwood averaged 74,000 at a home game and um, yeah, played Geelong in, in the grand final that year. So it was a... It was a Pretty amazing experience to be involved um, on match day. I, I'd, I'd go to training during the school holidays when, when I was uh, not teaching and, and then be there game day. So, yeah, to work under someone like Mick and, and Jeff Walsh, who was the, the footy manager, who was a, a amazing um, operator, it, was, it whet my appetite to get back involved. And it's funny how it works. Scott Waters was their defensive coach and he got the senior gig at the Saints the next year and said, Brownie, I want you to come and do the running and, potentially step into a role if one opens up, um, and that's exactly what I did. Brownie, what does a, a welfare manager or development manager do, and, and how do you see our current list at the moment? Yeah, I, I get that question a lot, Nick, and my, my role, I oversee the induction for all the new players coming in. So the two boys, Max and Cooper, who we drafted last night, I make contact with them as soon as their names are read out, um, contact their families, organise relocation if they have to come from interstate or country Victoria, assist with living, um, making sure that they're engaged in something meaningful off the field. So we've got 43 on our list now and, and all our boys are engaged in something meaningful, whether that's carpentry apprenticeship. I mean, we've got 13 boys at university doing one or two subjects a semester um, number of boys doing short courses, business courses, um, real estate, fitness courses. So making sure they're developing as people. I'm the first port of call if uh, if there's any issues. Um, I'm the yeah I liaise with the parents and the partners, and yeah making sure they're they're developing off the field and improving themselves as people. So when they transition out, they've actually got some skills to transition out into the real world. So I certainly support them when they get squeezed out, whether they get enlisted or retire. Um, some that need a little bit more than others with the support at the other end. But, yeah, they're always welcome back at the club and we make sure that they're aware of that when they leave. Is there any, this is a final question, is there any in terms of players that are actively on the list in terms of welfare-type issues? I'm probably asking a really broad question, but if you've got somebody like a... 
you know, let's say a Max King, for example, who appears to be going through the yips per se, from a welfare point of view, would that be something where you might put an arm around him and say, is there anything that we could do in terms of just having a chat or whether it's time away or whether it's more time in this space or even hypothetically the Matthew Lloyd type scenario that was proposed? Is that something that you would be involved in? You know, certainly I, I'm there to support Max and any of the boys in any way. I actually taught Max in year five at, at Haleybury College, so it's, it's quite unique that I'm now um, supporting him still um, in a welfare development space. But certainly I, I don't like to get involved in the, the coaching side of things. There's, a, there's enough coaches and expertise in, in that space. So he's got Jared Ruffhead, who's doing a great job, obviously Rats, um, and all the assistant coaches, but also Matty Lloyd, who's was his coach in, in Year 12 at Halebury. So I think Maxie's got enough people in his ear and, and, and supporting him with working through his challenges in front of goal at the moment. But, yeah, absolutely, if the boys need a hand with something footy-related, I'm more than happy to, to give advice or assist with, but, but mainly with the off-field stuff that I focus on. Tony, you're a joy to watch in full flight. It's great to have you still involved in the club and on the basis of the, the chat and many other things that the boys are certainly in safe hands and we appreciate you uh, joining us and uh, well done on all you, you've been able to do with the challenges that, that football has faced in the last couple of years as well. But I appreciate your time. How are you all, Darren? Thanks for having me. Well, everyone, four points. Um... Yeah, we're happy to get the four points. Um, there were some aspects in the sort of first half that we played pretty well, but um, we still got a fair bit of work to do. And, and for really to fall away in the last quarter and then kick 5-1, and we just undid a lot of our good work. Um, you know, expectations on our skill level, our finishing for goal, um, some of our defensive work, the roles that were played in the team. We started to go away from that. And, um, yeah, it's um, something that we've got to keep addressing and um, I have to keep driving these standards and hope you know, next week we don't see um, a quarter like that. But you know, the pleasing aspect is we did respond well early, we, we got into the game, we got ahead, you know, a lead, we put them under pressure, um, but you know, by the end it sort of felt, didn't feel completely like the victory that we wanted it to feel and um, that's something we're still working on. Tony Brown was our special guest this week. Also the thoughts of Brett Ratton with his coach's message out of the game. One change against Sydney. We hadn't beaten them for eight years until last year when we flogged them at the Gabba in our big run in the middle of the season. I think we won that game by 53 points or thereabouts. Hunter Clark was outstanding that day and he's back into the side this week, replacing Tom Highmore, who... It's a little stiff. He doesn't do a lot wrong when he's in the side. Highmore has been dropped three times this year, and probably he and Bytel are the two guys that are, um, you know, right on the fringe that for whatever reason aren't quite uh, getting locked away in the side. But good at least to have a degree of stability. We made five changes the week before, just the one this time. Sydney have had a pretty good year, but a lot of close games. I think their best football was certainly in the first month. That they've they've been solid since then, but. And I'm not, not trying to sort of bring them down or anything like that. They nearly beat Melbourne at the MCG a couple of weeks ago. I think they lost by eight points or something. But I think that they are, whilst they're closer to full strength, and Tom Hickey, I think he's back for them this week. Um, I think they're, if you look at the AFL injury ladder, they're on the bottom and we're on the top. But um, 
yeah, I, I still feel it is a gettable game. It, it hasn't been a great venue for us in recent years. It hasn't been a great opponent for us in recent years. But, um, yeah, it's it's an important game. If you get to six and six with everything that's happened this year, if we square it away, um, puts us in a pretty good position, H. How do you read it? As you're saying, yeah, um, it's a place that we need to win at. Um, we broke the Adelaide curse last year. We um, obviously played pretty well in Queensland. We obviously had to. Um, it, it's somewhere that, yeah, we've had a bit of trouble with and we, we need to go there. And I think you, you were saying yourself that in, Sydney have been playing great football there, but it's yeah, a team that we could... I don't know on the day that they're, they're sort of they're, the young side with a bit of the, the high end experience of Kennedy and Buddy and Parker. And so they've got a real mix that either, yeah, there's their seniors either stand up like they do most weeks or we've seen the young players really firing and how many um, rising star awards they've had the uh, nominations they've had this year already. They've, they're priming themselves for a fair crack in a couple of years time. Um, so it's going to be a matter of what do we, what, what do we peg down first? Do we try and beat their, beat their senior players? Do we try to make sure that their young guns don't get on top of us? It's yeah, it's a real, real mix that we have to be careful playing against. So, um, I think we have got, we've got the list to beat, to beat this side. We, we know that, but we're going to have to be really switched on. And as we're discussing before, four quarters of football. That is the only thing that's going to win it for us this year because so far this year, they haven't had, I would say, many games where they haven't played at least two and a half, three quarters of good football. They've they've been actually probably one of the more impressive sides this year. Um, a couple of, they've switched off late a couple of times. So if you're with them, there's a good chance you could probably overrun them perhaps or whatever. A bit, as I say, young players getting a bit tired or that, but it's it's really a tough game that we're really going to have to be on the ball to win. If not, it could get pretty ugly. I was a bit surprised about the the Highmore change just because, I guess a bit like the Kangaroos, the, the Swans have a number of kind of that mid-size, small to mid-size third kind of forward type guys that rotate through that, that forward line. They've obviously got... Isaac Heaney, who's electric, and he's not—he's not a small forward. He's—he's he's not big, but he's also not a small forward. He—he he plays bigger than he is. They've got Papley again, who's—who's who's similar. He's—he's he's small, but he plays bigger. He's—he's he's got strong hands. He's quick around the ball. Um, and, and then guys like um, Callum Mills, who's moved you know, from defence into the middle, but also pushes forward and, and impacts the scoreboard. Um, and, and a few of those those other guys that just kind of that mid-size forward that I thought was probably a really good matchup for, for Highmore this week that any one of them he could take when they, they move forward. Um, but I guess it, it shows that the faith that the, the group has in Claverino that, that they've kept him in as, as a key back um, and, and a key defender um, over Highmore this week. But I was a bit disappointed. I, I'm really glad to see Hunter Clark back, obviously, hopefully that the week off, uh, did his, did him some good, both from a, a physical and mental, emotional perspective. Um, I think for a lot of the guys, the the bye week next week can't come quick enough. Um, but this is this is going to be a real a real 
slog, I feel. You know, we've had tough games against them forever. It feels like we never beat them. Um, and, you know, it would just, I, I think it would give the group so much confidence to be able to go into a week off knowing that they've got one of those those other, you know, bogey teams off their back, like you mentioned before about, about Adelaide and, and Port Adelaide last year, to be able to go into a bye week having beaten Sydney in Sydney, um, especially given the, you know, the, the first half of the season they've had so far, it, it would be a huge confidence boost. And then, you know, there's another winnable game after the bye and, and all of a sudden, you know, your perspective and your perception of where we're at this year starts to change. And, and once that happens, once you get that a bit of momentum, you know, and we talked to, to, to Tony Brown about momentum and what that means to a player. Um, once, once you get that and you get that confidence rolling, then anything can happen. And we know how tough the, the second half fixture is for us. We know that our entire season has, has you know, I, not been ideal by any stretch, but, you know, we win this week and potentially, you know, go into that buy full of confidence. We get a win after the buy and all of a sudden we're, you know, we're back on positives and, and you know, anything can happen. And you look at the tough fixture in the run home, some of the return legs. One is West Coast, who are injury depleted, out of form. We've beaten them already. Um, Geelong, who we should have beaten. No, no, it's Kininia Park, but we had them on toast uh, a few weeks ago. Um, Port Adelaide, but it's in Melbourne. Sydney, but it's in Melbourne. So that there's none of those fixtures are impossible. Obviously, you've got Richmond, I think, at the MCG. Again, they, they're decimated by injuries. And again, we don't even know if it's at the MCG. Um, Brisbane at the Gabba is clearly a genuinely really tough fixture that we've got in the run home. But that's the thing. The season evolves and, and there's no reason why you're no chance in, in any of those matches. I know we've got to win a few, but you've still got Collingwood and Carlton and Frio and teams like that in the run home as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, you don't want to get ahead of yourself, but it's an opportunity. So it's a tough game against a side that's had a very good year and a, and a good young group. And Tom Hickey obviously coming up against one of his 13 former clubs in the AFL. Um, so that's the, the, the challenge that, that, that sits in front of us. But if you win it, you get the six and six. You get a bit of a rest. You play a team in, in Adelaide who have looked to be spiking back up again, but they're, you know, they've been all right in the last couple of weeks, but certainly winnable. But yeah, you, you've got a target in your head, six and six, seven and six, and then, you know, keep your season on track from, from that point onwards. So that's what sits in front of us. And we'll, uh, we'll obviously await it this weekend. And, you know, we can pinpoint what we think the fixture will look like, but hopefully it, um, it does go that way. They can get back to Victoria and we can have some degree of normality in the, uh, in the back half of the year. But good luck. I know everybody will be watching it in ISO again this weekend or in, in lockdown. But, um, yeah, hopefully when we get back to the footy uh, in a few weeks' time, our season is still alive and this game will go a long way to, to demonstrating that. But go Saints. You can catch that in every podcast up online as well if you want to catch any of our chats. We've had a... Pretty diverse range of guests this season. We've had, um, you know, a lot of the past and the present. We've had guys like uh, Justin Kaczynski and uh, also players from back as far as Frankie Coglin. We've had Jason Heatley in between, obviously Tony Brown, Sam Gilbert and a host of others as well. So plenty of special guests to come along the way. But enjoy uh, this weekend's footy. There's obviously only one way that can happen and we'll uh, reconvene next week.